All right, good morning. It's it's the official 10 o'clock, so we'll get started. This is the elder corner up here. In case I say anything wrong, they're going to hear it correctly. All right, welcome to uh, The Way It Was Written, uh, the New Testament in the order that it was written. Last week we did a uh, uh, kind of an orientation of kind of the social, governmental, uh, cultural background for the Roman Empire and Judea, uh, where the Bible was written. This week we're going to do the first book. The first book is, almost everyone agrees, is James. Almost. Almost. Trust me. There is no, there is no unanimously consented uh, order of the Bible, who wrote the books. You, no matter who you find, you can find someone say, oh no, this wasn't written here, or this was written there. It wasn't written by him, it was written by one of his disciples. Uh, so when we go through this, we'll try to bring some of that up. Uh, we had a discussion after last week about uh, when the book of Revelation was written. Because uh, that has to do with our order. Uh, but Randall and I voted, outvoted, uh, where's Alan? Alan's not here. Uh, we outvoted him two to one, then we're going to do That's why I didn't come back. Because we're going to do the class in the order that's on the PowerPoint. Uh, but we, we will get Alan up during Revelations and we can discuss the different uh, backgrounds of where it was written. So we're talking about James. Uh, although, to, to be clear, James is actually not the name of the book of James. It's the name in English, uh, which we'll get to that later. All right, let's talk about you know, who's the author, who's the audience, when was it written, where was James when he wrote the book? Uh, and what's the theme? We're, we're pretty clear that in English the name is James, and A. James wrote the book of James. Uh, so let's talk about who is the author. James was a very, very common name in the first century in Judaism. James is also not his name. His name is Jacob. We would translate it as Jacob. It gets to James... We'll get to that in a little bit, but it's as you switch languages, it becomes James. But his name is actually Jacob, which makes a whole lot more sense if you're thinking about a Jewish name, because James is Greek. Uh, Jacob is very Jewish, so his name actually is Jacob. Uh, so, but the name Jacob, which we translate James, was a very, very common name in the first century. Uh, so who's the author? These are all different, as Randall will tell you, there's all different possible authors and people say, oh, this guy wrote it or this guy wrote it. You have James the Apostle. He's called the Son of Thunder. Uh, he's the brother of John the Apostle. So he's one of the, you know, he's one of the big four. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, he's one of the inner circle. Uh, he was killed by Herod in AD 44. If so, when you get into dating in this book, if James the Apostle wrote it, it better be before AD 44. Uh, and that's actually in Acts 12, which when we get to Acts, which will be down the road sometime, uh, we'll talk about that. There's another apostle, as you sing the little apostle song, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And, uh, you have James, notice James, in the song is James the Less. He's the other James. Uh, very little is known about him. Uh, the only thing we have about him is 
early church writings have him stoned in Jerusalem by the Jews. So, like all the apostles, they tended to have, most of the apostles, other than John, Peter, and Paul, tended to have pretty short lives that ended with violence. Uh, this John, this James, is dead by 844. This one, we know James is the first apostle to die. This James probably dies a little after him. Uh, there's no nothing, he, he is not the author of this book. We don't really know much about him at all, other than the fact that he was an apostle. In fact, the, of the 12 apostles, we know a lot about Peter. We know about John. After that, it gets really, really hazy. Uh, James, we think, based on Perry Church writings, died in Jerusalem in the 40s. We know this James died in Jerusalem in the 40s. Uh, Thomas, by history, gets to India, where he is run through by a lance, I think, and dies in the field. Uh, that, that's the story. Uh, uh, so, some of them get to Africa and where they die. Uh, some of them, a lot of them stay around the middle of, uh, around Palestine. But we're pretty sure that the author is not either one of the Jameses that come on earlier. All right. There is a James, Jacob, who is the brother, the, sorry, the half-brother of Jesus. Right? Unless you're Catholic, in which case he is the uh, half-brother, or not even the half-brother. He's the child of Joseph's first marriage. <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a lot of that. I think it's pretty clear that he is the subsequent brother of Jesus. Uh, he's probably not the first brother. The first brother would have been Joseph. Because in the first century, if you had a boy, he got your name. That's why when Jesus is born and when John the Baptist is born, they had, everyone goes, what? You're naming Jesus or you're naming John? That's not your name. Uh, so we, we know, based on Matthew 13, there are, there's James, Joseph, Simon, Judah, and their sisters. And we know that, sorry, Judah would be actually the book of Jude. He's also the author, surprise, because this is extra credit early. The author of the book of Jude is Jude, who would have been in the first century known as Judah. A lot of our names get transliterated from Hebrew or Aramaic to Greek to Latin to Spanish, Italian, French to English. And so the names that we call books are not actually the names of what the guys wrote. Uh, because James is really J Jacob. But in Matthew 13, we see him come with his family. We know from the, uh, the book of John, he is not an early believer. In fact, we know because uh, in Mark and in uh, Matthew, they, they come to get Jesus because they think he's acting crazy. They're going like, let's... You know, you're embarrassing the family, let's get you back home. Uh, and then we know, however, by the early book of Acts, he becomes one of the pillars and the leader of the church in 
Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 12 and Galatians. And then all these writers, which are peri-church, early church father writings, all cast him as very righteous and the undisputed leader of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, we are fairly sure he died in AD 62. And are also fairly sure that he was stoned by the Jews. Again, a lot of the early church leaders had very short... They, they, did, they died violently. It was, it was, there's not a good retirement plan if you're an apostle. Uh, so, James, the brother of Jesus, almost assuredly is the author. All right. When Paul comes back after his first missionary journey, James is one of the people mentioned by name to whom he gives his report. And also, who Christ appeared to after his resurrection. So, if I guess if my old, your, your half-brother you know, dies on a cross, comes back, and is raised from the dead, maybe you're going to believe him at that point. It's pretty clear because John, James becomes a pillar of the early church. Uh, Paul calls him a pillar. Uh, when Paul, on his first, per, first post-conversion visit, first person, one of the people he sees is, he sees Peter and he sees James. So James is a very powerful person in the early church. His last visit, Paul also sees James. So we know James is around for this whole period of time where Paul's making his missionary journeys. Uh, in Acts 12, when Paul comes out of prison, he tells his friends, go tell James. Uh, and we know in Acts 15, he's the leader of the, of the council. Uh, James is so famous that when Jude writes his book, he simply says, I am Jude, the brother of James. And so, uh, to the first century church, at the time of the writing of James, he would have been extremely well known. To the point that he just has to say, my name is James. He is like uh, the Beyonce of the first century, <laughs> right? Single name, you don't have to say, James, the son of... Jewish are always identifying themselves by who they're the son of. And so, I mean, typically it would be James uh, bar Joseph. Uh, he doesn't identify himself there. He's son James. And so, part of that's he's so well-known, people would have instantly known, oh, that's James. The guy who's in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And we know he was martyred in AD 62 because Josephus in Antiquities records the event. Uh, Josephus is a Jew. Alright, who does? I'm assuming a lot of people do not know who Josephus is. Raise your hand. Right. Josephus is. Raise your hand if you don't do, know. Or you, or you, yeah, if you don't know, raise your hand. Lots. You've probably heard the name. Josephus was a Jewish guy who. Was a terrible general. He was a terrible general. He gets captured by the Romans. Uh, because he's in rebellion against Rome. Usually they kill you. However, the Roman generals who were running it could not read or write Hebrew. So they, they couldn't talk to the Jews. He is very educated. And so and he, he clearly is a persuasive person. Because the Roman generals make him a slave and they make him write their entire history of the conquer, conquering Palestine. So that's why we have all his writings. He's a really good writer. 
And so uh, he's written several things. Because he's a Jew, he understands what the Jews are. He understands who they are, who's important. So a lot of what we get outside the Bible is written by Josephus. And so, he's, so he is there at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and then he's taken back to Rome uh, as a slave because the guys who pick him up end up becoming emperors. And it's always good to be the slave of the emperor. If you're going to be a slave of someone, be the slave of the emperor, not the slave of the farmer. And so Josephus' writings exist. So in AD 62, Josephus writes that the Sadducees get mad at James. So we're talking... The church is established around 30. Uh, you're talking about 32 years later. So James is relatively old. The church is grown. And uh, they stone him to death as a heretic. There we go. All right. So who's the audience? James tells you the audience is James 1 1. To all the Jewish Christians. Uh, and most important of our, about this book is James, this book is not to make you a Christian. This is not, this is not like a lot of Paul's writings where he's trying to take people who don't know anything about Jesus and create Christians out of them. He is writing to Jews who understand the Old Testament, who have converted to Christianity and followed Jesus as the Messiah. So there is no attempt at conversion in this book, which is one of the reasons that uh, Martin Luther particularly had problems with James, because it does not tell you the story of Jesus at all. In fact, this is only partially mentioned twice in the book. So Martin Luther thought this book should actually be in the Old Testament because it was so, one, it's very Jewish, and two, it really doesn't try to convert you. The reason it doesn't try to convert you is that he's talking to the people who are already converted. What he's writing this letter is, uh, I, want you, I want you to understand how to live once you're converted. Uh, there it is. My computer's old, it's being slow. Uh, these, this map shows you the places that we know that there were Jewish synagogues, which means there was a fairly significant concentration of Jews in the first century. You can see they're all over, up and down the Nile River, up the coast, all the way over here into Babylon, Mesopotamia, uh, this area, all the way along the coast here up to Rome. Jews were... Uh, very valuable slaves and servants because the average Jewish guy was literate. He could read, he could do basic math. So in the Roman Empire where literacy rate was probably around 2 or 3%, the average Jewish man, all of them, could, could read either Greek or Hebrew depending on which version of the Bible they were looking at. Uh, and so, they, so a lot of them would get drugged Sometimes by chance, by the, they, they would get jobs. Sometimes they'd become slaves and get drugged to the various uh, large cities around uh, the, Middle, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, the Roman Empire. And so the church 
grows very rapid because you know all these people. And if you're Jewish, you make a you come back for Passover. You don't come back necessarily every year. You try to come back as you can. And so a lot of them were there at the beginning of the church, and they started scattering back to their hometowns. Uh, because if you're a, this is where we have issues with slave. We don't understand how Roman slavery worked. If you were a slave, you could travel if your master allowed you to travel. And so a lot of these people were, oh yeah, you can go to Jerusalem as long as you come back. And then, you know, if, if your children are all back, say you were from uh, Athens, if your children are all back in Athens cause, and you and your wife traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover, you're going to come back because you're, you're not going to leave your children. Uh, and so the church, in the first 10 plus years, is almost exclusively Jewish. It's now gone back to all these cities where there are large Jewish populations. James writes a letter to them so, it, they're Jews, they, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, and so he's not trying to make new Christians out of them. He's trying to tell them, now that you are a Christian, here's how you live. And here's some of the problems I see developing. Because we're now somewhere around, uh, we'll get to dates, probably 15 to 16 years into the church. Uh, but he's writing, he's, writing, he's writing a circular letter, so he's writing multiple copies that's going to go out to all these locations. Uh, Rome had a fairly reliable mail service. You know, we all think that these are a long way away. There are ships that go there, so it's pretty easy to get things put in, not the U.S. mail, but the Roman mail, and get it to where you wanted to get to. So this letter would have gotten around this part pretty easily. This part over here is not Rome. This belongs to other people. But the letter would probably get there at some point. And a little review from last week. <coughs> the population to who he's written. Most Jews, this is, uh, off, this is economics, uh, most Jews live in this section right here. The lower, you will notice that when you look at what percent of the population, the Roman Empire had about 55 million people. Most of them are in this lower part of the, of the economics. That's most Jews in the first century. They're poor. There are some Jews that are up here, other rich people in municipal centers. So you have this, there, there's very little in between. You're either very rich or you're very poor. And so the early church was that. You had some rich people and you had some poor people. And James is going to talk about that as part of one of the problems. Uh, when was it written? Uh, you'll see as early as 42, some people as late as 60. Uh, there's also guys who say 125. It's 125, James did not write it. He was dead by then. Uh, most people agree that it's probably, if James is the author, somewhere in the 45 to 48, which is just before Paul starts going on his first missionary journey, which is... So we know the church is overwhelmingly Jewish, and it's based, it's still based in synagogues. <clears throat> Where was it written? Uh, we're pretty sure if it's written at that time by James, James has lived in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the, head, is the center of the Jewish world. 
it's the backwater of the Roman world. The, Roman, the Romans only conquered it because the, the Sadducees were dumb enough to offer them money. Nobody wants Jerusalem. The Jews always rebel. There's nothing of value there. There's no gold. Uh, they don't grow anything to speak of. Uh, so we tend to think of Jerusalem like the center of the world. It's the, it's the, back, it's the backwater. Rome is the center of the world. Athens is probably the next center of the world. Antioch's the center of the world. Jerusalem is not. So uh, it's from a standpoint, it's a, it's a fairly safe place for the church to start because the Romans aren't paying a lot of attention. They don't really care what happens to Jerusalem as long as, remember the two rules? Pay your taxes, don't rebel. Uh, the Jews, could, Jews had a problem with the don't rebel part. They rebelled all the time. But they weren't very coordinated. I, I, I laugh because you know, you've heard the statement, I belong to no organized religion, I'm Church of Christ. Uh, the Jew, yes, the Jews are very much like that. They don't, they're not part of an organized religion. There were so many sects of the Jews, they could not put together a rebellion to save their life. The only two times they tried were 80, 70, and 132. They lost both of them. Uh, so they, they were not, there were constantly small groups of them rebelling. And so it was not, the, uh, the governor of Judea was not a prized appointment by the emperor. That's where you sent people that you really didn't like very well. Because it's like, they're going to rebel while you're there, and you're going to have to put them down. Uh, that's politics. Uh, so James is living in Jerusalem. The church, the church is, at this point in time, the church has two centers of gravity. Jerusalem is very Jewish, and by this point in time, Peter has probably moved to Antioch. Because we're seeing that the, the, the Sadducees especially uh, were uh, persecuting the church. The Pharisees and Sadducees were persecuting the church, so the church scatters. And the, 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 the second largest city in the Roman Empire is Antioch of Syria. And so the church actually moves there. So you've got a big population in Jerusalem, big population in Antioch, and then scattered churches everywhere else. Scattered Jewish Christians everywhere else, not churches. Because when Paul goes places, there, there are by and large no churches where he goes. But there are believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Alright, the themes of the book. Uh, perseverance and trials. Again, the church is being persecuted by the other Jewish people. If, so even if you're living in uh, Rome and you're a Jewish Christian, the other Jews are going to shun you because you're not part of the mainline Jewish thought. Uh, and so there are lots of trials. Uh, it talks about everyone should be slow to listen, or sorry, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, which is a traditional Jewish wisdom <coughs> speaking. Uh, and then uh, he really rails multiple times in the book about unfaithfulness and lack of discipline with wealth. Because there are wealthy people he's talking to and that they don't do a good job with their wealth. And this is probably the most important part of the book. The interest in this book is in the fruits, not the roots. Meaning he's, he doesn't care how you, he doesn't go into how do you become a Christian. That's the roots of your faith. He talks about once you are a Christian, what happens? Alright. This book is 
does not read like other New Testament books because it's Jewish. Uh, it's written in uh, called the String of Pearls writing. The book that's most similar to this book in the whole Bible is the book of Proverbs. And this, if you read Proverbs and read this book, you go, oh, yes, I understand where he gets his, his writing style from. Uh, it's called a string of pearls. If you think about it, if you hold a string of pearls out, there's a good pearl and a little line connected to the next one. That's, what, that's a Jewish style of writing where they would put together sayings. So there are 54, over this book, there are 54 sayings and 108 verses. So, which, to a Jew, we were talking about before class, would the Jews recognize this book? Absolutely. Because it's very much first century Jewish style of writing. Statement, statement. It's a little bit circular, it's a little bit chiastic. We are, remember, we're, we're, our education system, we were all growing up in Greek. Because in Greek, right, first paragraph is what? Introduction. At least three paragraphs that support your introduction, then you have your conclusion. That's how Paul writes. Most of Pauline books are written that way. This book is not written that way. This is, this is Jewish, which is I'm going to make a statement, and I'm, just gonna, I'm going to have a a group of statements around that statement, then I'm going to go to another statement, and another statement. And he really doesn't have a conclusion at the end where he says, and here's what I just taught you. You just look at the book and go through it. It's very much, it's very much like Proverbs. It's wisdom literature, and it, it's, not, it, it's not a written as a paper. And he, the things he does in here are easy to remember pithy statements. So that you go, oh yeah, James said this. James said that. All right, let me see if I can get this to work. Uh, the uh, the BibleProject.org does really great little eight-minute videos. We're going to shoot one of this, or show one, I hope, of this uh, book, and then we can talk a little bit about what it says and what it doesn't say. It's hard to do on a, uh, easy on an apple. Or, uh, I've lost my. There it is. There it is. I know this is the hard part right here. If I was 20, this would be easy. If you move forward. That's right. That's forward. So four yeah, all right. So we need to go get someone out of the four-year-old class to fix this. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Yakovas, which translates his Hebrew oh. name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. And that's what we're going to call him in this video. Now there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the twelve disciples, but this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, 
Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem, who was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who are living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1-9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy to memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consists of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-line. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're mean. Jacob says this is the opposite of love, as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teaching. Now scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people, and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people, and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith, 
filled prayer. Now this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them in a slow way. Now, placed in front of these 12 Weiss teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of Weiss teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience, life is hard. He wasn't martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect is really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life, where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people, with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people, to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith, without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the sun. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character. That the Father is generous. That he's there to meet us in our pain. And that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans. Who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father. Just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Father, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. We're not going to judges. Uh, for those of you who are, the Bible Project's on YouTube. Uh, they have every book that, with a brief oversight. It's a very good tool. Besides the fact he's a much better uh, drawer than I am. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that artistic ability. Uh, all right, so now let's, let's 
look at the book itself in the next 10 minutes. Uh, and you know, the thing to remember, he's talking about, again, he's a lot of, like for instance, uh, Martin Luther did not like this book because it talks a lot about actions. It doesn't talk about grace at all. Uh, it does not talk about salvation at all. It talks about actions. And so when you read a lot of the early Reformation movement and then into the Restoration movement where we come from, James is not a favorite book because uh, the, a lot of the authors will say it pushes you towards works. It's like, I'm going to earn my salvation. Uh, whereas the book we're going to do next week, Galatians, is the opposite of that. It's, you're given a free gift of salvation. Uh, the way, uh, as you're in reading up for this, uh, here, Randall, I need you for a second. I'm sorry. Go go stand next to me. All right. In in the spectrum of works versus grace. Works. What your your works? Uh, You have uh, works oriented over here, where 100 percent of what you do determines your salvation. You earn your way to heaven. Over here, on this end, is it's 100 percent grace. Once you're saved, no matter what you do. You're in heaven. These two books we're going to look at this week and next week, James and Galatians, look at this equation from different views. What uh, James is doing, that's 100% works. The Jewish population was used to that. I mean, because you're you're a son of God, right? You're a son of Abraham. You're automatically saved. Uh, And so they're kind of like, come over here, you're over here. Can I go? Over here? Go over here. I don't know if you go over there. So, so the, the, the Jewish population is like, we're, we're in. We're golden. Right? I'm both Jew and I believe the Messiah. It doesn't matter what I do. Next week, Paul's going to be talking about uh, Greeks who are very works oriented, which is, you know, you have to go to the temple. You have to give, you have to go to the temple. Or sorry, not. The Jewish temple. The other, there's, you know, there's 50 Greek gods. You have to sacrifice to all the gods. You have to earn your way, because in Greek religion, you have to earn your way to heaven. And so what you have are two authors who are defending their different points. Uh, the Jewish ones, are, what, he, what James is saying to them is, the Jewish guys want to get to this I don't have to do anything and so James is standing here going no based on this book you have to because you are saved act like a Christian you have to act like Jesus you have to do stuff so he's a barrier this way uh, to the Christians saying you can't go to 100%, I don't do anything. Which is what a lot of the Jews were doing. It's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a son of Abraham, and I, I believe in Messiah. Paul, on the other hand, which we'll see next week, is standing here, stopping from going, I'm going to earn, I have to go over here and earn my way to heaven. And so, 
these two books sit and basically provide uh, guardrails for, for the two extremes of religious thought. So James is, or Paul is standing here going, nope, you can't go to works. James is standing here going, no, 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 you, you have to work some. But you work some because you are saved. It's, you, can't, you can't earn your salvation. And, you, and you, once you are saved, you have to act in a certain way. So that's, you look at these two books, you're going to see them as basic guardrails on either side of the, of the Christian saying, you can't go too far this way, don't go too far that way. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> Paul, I like Paul better. That's right. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a question. When you were saying that, I'm running me, that's an echo of Jesus' words also, where he says, don't think just because you're son of Abraham, you know, you have to, and there's a lot of, if you love me, you'll do what I say. But then that occurred, occurred to me, you know, with the video, all those things, those references, James wrote it before those things were written down. Correct. Because James and right. Matthew come from the same source, right? Oh, okay. Ma- Matthew was standing next to Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount going, oh, this is really good. I should write this down. Yeah. You know, he's got his iPad out, you know, making his notes <laughs> on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, was James there too? The odds are pretty good that based on the amount of times James quotes Jesus, that James was at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Sermon on the Mount does not, is not very far. It occurs very close to where James grew up, where Jesus and James grew up. It's not, you know, it's, it's not like a 20-day trip away. So the odds are fairly good that James, based on how he repeats the Sermon on the Mount throughout this entire book, that James heard the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's... And, so when you see this book, what you hear are echoes of the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over and over and over again. And so that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we know this belongs in the New Testament. And like I said, this is also because we're talking about when they were written. Yeah, you would think, oh, he read Matthew, and then he wrote all this good stuff down. Matthew's not written for, this is AD 48, Matthew's probably written 15 years after this. 14 years after this. Uh, so it's written much later. So yeah, this is the first time, so a lot of this is the first time Jewish Christians have seen this stuff written down, at least letters that have, have got through to us. Now are there are there probably letters at least where people are writing stuff down? For sure. You know, they were they were literate and they, they wrote back and forth. But as a book of the Bible, this is probably the earliest one where Jesus where James or Jacob is going over, basically reinforcing the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus said. This, yes, what you should do. Uh, and, you know, there are. So this is not a works-oriented gospel or book. But what he's saying is, because you are saved, you should act like Jesus. And here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how you should act like. Him. You know, and he talks about uh, in trials and perseverance. Uh, pray for wisdom. And he really hammers money three different times in this very short book. Because there are people that have money that weren't using it to help other people. And basically, he comes back to the same thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The money's not yours. God gives you the money. Use it in ways that help my people. You know, and, and, the, and this book is you know the one that we talk about. Uh, at the end of the first chapter, he talks about uh, uh, what's true, true pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this 
to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He does not take out orphans and widows as a special, uh, th those are great people. Yes, they're great. That's an early first century idiom. This means from the beginning to the end. We, we would say something like, uh, from New York to Los Angeles, or from A to Z. That's orphans are the youngest, widows are the oldest, of people that need help that you come across. So what James is saying is, whoever you come across that needs help, God has put you there as his hands and feet to help them. So it's, it's not you know, a word that I should, I should shun everyone but orphans and widows. It's the fact that the first century Jewish talk, speech, that's, that's everyone from the beginning from the least, the youngest, to the oldest. A to Z, Alpha to Omega, you would agree. New York, across the entire US. If you run across anyone, you help them. So that's kind of the issue. All right, that is 10.45. So next week, the book of Galatians. And I'll make, Randy up here, we'll do this thing again. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>